and welcome to episode 13 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I am your host, Miles Taylor. I'm very excited to be doing this on Call-In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. Today, we have a guest that many of you know, a man named Michael Cohen, who previously had been the ultimate insider until he defected to the outside. He was lawyer to former President Donald Trump and now has been very, very vocal about fighting corruption, fighting misinformation, and namely fighting to keep his former boss for re- from reassuming power in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Michael Cohen, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, Miles. You know, um, we've been down the road a few times together already. We have been down the road, and I'd be remiss if I didn't direct uh, folks to make sure that they subscribe to and listen to Maya Culpa, Michael's podcast, where he's out there talking about these issues on a very regular basis. I got to ask you out of the gate, Michael, about something that just hit the headlines yesterday, and I really want your reaction to it, is your former boss, (laughs) unfortunately, my former boss, Donald Trump, did an interview with the Washington Post, where he suggested that something like health reasons could hypothetically prevent someone from running for office for the presidency. It almost seemed like he was giving himself an out to back out of the 2024 race. What do you make of that? Yeah, so look, he always needs an escape route, right? Donald is the master of the escape. Uh, He's really like the Houdini of politics, where, you know, He's going to continue this grift, this lie about I'm running, I want to run, I may run, I'm not running. He's going to keep the grift going as long as he possibly can. And then at the very end, when he ultimately decides that he's not going to run, he's going to say, but I told you so. Quite frankly, folks, I told you. I told you going back on April 14th that, you know, for health reasons, for family reasons, that I just can't run. I just, you know, I want to. I would win, but I can't. So I'm going to be a power broker. And that's the game that he plays, the same game that he played with America when he said about two months before the election that the election is going to be rigged. It's going to be stolen from us because he had been given information that's not beneficial to him, that basically stated that he could not win the election against Joe Biden. So instead of accepting his loss, he creates the big lie. And he creates the big lie well in advance so it doesn't seem contrived. What do you think Michael might change his mind? If you think Trump is ultimately going to bow out of the process, what series of factors do you think change the game and actually convince him, you know what? Yeah, I'm definitely going to make another go of it. It'll be the poll numbers. So he'll stick around long enough to see how the poll numbers are going for him. Now, remember, right now, there's got to be at least two dozen Republicans believing that they themselves are going to be running for the office of the presidency and that they feel that they're entitled to run for it with or without Donald Trump's support. 
Then again, you have individuals, you know, who are going to want Trump's support because he, of course, does control about 28 percent of the Republican base. But folks like Ron DeSantis, Ted Cruz will probably take another stab at it. Hopefully, John Kasich will take a stab at it. You're going to see people like, you know, uh, Josh Hawley taking a stab at it and so many others. And what what will ultimately happen is they're all going to try to to vie for you know Trump's attention for his approval and as they continue to grow in numbers and he sees that his numbers are not going to be big enough or that there's too many people in the race then he'll, he like I said he'll he'll bail but if in fact everybody else steps aside for the king to come in then then he would continue up until the very end. And again, I still don't think he ends up running because if he ran and he will lose, thereby he negates the entire big lie. So in the meantime, Michael, regardless of what decision he makes, he's raising a war chest. He's raising hundreds of millions of dollars. And you, among all other people more so than anyone else in his orbit, I think have very unique insight into one, why he's raising those millions of dollars, and two, what he might do with that. Can you shine a little light on, if he's not running, why he's raising ungodly amounts of money? Yeah, well, if anybody would go and they would take a look at Trump's PAC, um, one of the things that you'll find is that he hasn't spent any of the money. And you have to say to yourself, why? The whole purpose of these people donating money, right, is for, you know, him to figure out how to use it in order to benefit the Republican Party, how to benefit his potential 2024 run. And the reason that he's not spending any of it, if you read the fine print, only 10% of the money that's raised has to go to political cause, the other 90% is at the discretion of Donald J. Trump. Well, when you start talking about discretion, what are you talking about? Well, maybe Donald needs a new airplane. Maybe Donald needs money for litigation. Maybe Donald needs money to pay real estate taxes or what else. It doesn't matter. It's 100%. It's at Donald's discretion for 90% of the money that these Republican fools are actually giving to him and this bullshit pack of his. You, you were there, Michael. You saw him set up vehicles like this to arrange for grifts like this. Would Trump be open about those things in private? Was he candid about the real purpose behind setting up these types of these vehicles? No, no. And understand the only person that would have been involved in those. Now, remember, we did not have this type of a vehicle um, when I was you know, with Trump. In all fairness, uh, even when you were with Trump, these type of vehicles didn't exist. What he always talked about at the office was that Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, started, and I forget what the name of that company was, Tin, uh, Tineo. Uh, they created this pack for Hillary Teneo, yeah. that Teneo, that um, that permitted her to raise also ungodly amounts of money 
but 15% of it were for specific cause. The other 85% was to go, you know, at, at her discretion. And Trump immediately saw this as a money-making opportunity for him. And so, of course, since Clinton had 15% going, thereby giving her only 85% uh, full discretion and control over, he, of course, had to make it 90%. And it's really all about the grift. It's all about keeping the money largely for himself. It, it's pretty stunning to see. And in the near term here, you've got Trump going out there and endorsing candidates. He's really trying to manipulate the midterm cycle so that his money to these candidates. And how valuable is Trump's endorsement going to shake out to be in the primaries? Will he still look like he's the kingmaker of the GOP after this November? Okay, so rest assured that, for example, Trump's um, PAC, right, raised more than $110 million, um, by the end of, I think it was by the end of February, that they had crossed the $110 million mark. Um, I mean, rest assured that not one penny of that is going to go into anyone else's campaign. It's basically going to be him doing things with the RNC, maybe supporting the RNC, who of course is now still paying his legal bills. So who knows how in his crazy diluted mind that he will be able to, you know, um, use the 10% and claim that he did what he was supposed to do. Other than that, um, not one dollar of that is going to go into anybody else's you know, uh, campaign. It's not going to be used uh, for anybody else. He may run some political ads, something like, you know, Donald says. And then again, because he loves seeing himself on television, he loves seeing his name in print, all that money will go to basically help to support, you know, his massive ego. If Trump doesn't run for president again, Michael, but continues to try to influence the political process, what do you think the biggest threat is from the legacy of Trumpism? Does it does it get, uh, you know, do we course it out of the, the veins of our political system? Or do you think that this lingers? And what's the biggest danger of it lingering? Well, Trumpism is really a stench on our country that I don't believe we're going to be able to get rid of at this point. You know, what he has done is he's opened up the floodgates to people like Ron DeSantis, who's legitimately nothing more than the Donald Trump 2.0. The same thing as it relates to Josh Hawley or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. They're all the same crazy. And look, just all you have to do is acknowledge that 50% of all Republicans believe in QAnon. They believe that the Democrats control some sort of a cabal of pedophiles that are killing children for their blood because it keeps them young. I mean, it's hard to imagine that this significant number of people actually believe this level of crazy. And these are all the same people that are the you know diehard Trump supporters. They're the people that 
reporters are asking questions to about you know Trump and uh, about who's president of the United States and they they legitimately look into the camera and they make statements like Donald Trump is still president and then when asked a second question well who is it that right now is occupying the White House and they turn around they say that doesn't matter Donald Trump is still president that's a real problem they're the same people that continue to believe in the big lie that Trump won the election and that the election was stolen from him and that the voting machines were rigged so that that's the most dangerous part of this whole thing, that the voting machines are rigged. So everyone that voted for Donald Trump became tallied as a Joe Biden vote. And that's a very dangerous thing because as Americans, if we can't believe in our process, in our electoral process, well, then what else do we have? I, uh, Michael, I, I want to talk with you about the misinformation and how big of a threat that is, because you just threw out a number suggesting that millions and millions of Republicans nationwide, tens of millions are QAnon believers. I, I want to emphasize for viewers, those aren't made up numbers. Those aren't fake numbers from Michael Cohen. This is the data that we're seeing in polls now that tens of millions of Americans now say they subscribe to QAnon, something that went from a fringe conspiracy theory has now been mainstreamed by folks like Donald Trump. And I want to tell you, Michael, the one that blew my mind this week is I read about this Russian conspiracy theory. I'm sure you have seen uh, that they started about six weeks ago. The Russian government has been promoting the idea that the United States operates secret bioweapons laboratories in Ukraine. And that's the reason that they had to go into Ukraine. I can tell you from being from the national security community, this is ridiculous, it's not real, there's no secret bioweapons labs. But in the six weeks since that theory started to spread on the internet, now 25% of Americans, according to a poll that just came out, 25% of Americans now believe it's very likely that there are secret bioweapons laboratories that were operating in Ukraine. We went from no one believing this fringe conspiracy theory to one in four Americans because that's how fast misinformation, even out of power. And now to be clear, Donald Trump didn't spread that theory, but he is actively continuing to try to sow discord um, and to spread things like the big lie. And they continue to propagate like wildfire. How do, how do you get someone like a Trump to stop? I guess that's the question. Even if he's not running for president again, how do you get the misinformation to stop? Well, you don't. His entire candidacy was predicated on misinformation. Let's not forget, you know, the, you know, some of the things that I myself were involved with. For example, the Ted Cruz father, right, standing with Lee Harvey Oswald and on the front page of the National Enquirer claiming that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of JFK, right? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Trump knew that that was a lie. He didn't care. It didn't matter. It was all about discrediting you know, Ted Cruz. We did the same thing to Marco Rubio with the same newspaper. You know, Donald Trump is a master of misinformation, you know, and he will never stop doing it so long as it benefits him. And people really need to fully understand and comprehend the narcissistic sociopath 
that was ultimately elected to the highest office not just you know in our in our country but making him the most powerful person in the world and he has now tasted that power let's not forget when he sat with president xi of china and stated to him well you know how come you don't have to run anymore well well i changed you know i changed the we'll call it constitution uh in china and now i can stay you know um indefinitely. And he was like, wow, uh, that's pretty cool. I wonder if I'll be able to do something like that. And then started to joke around. And remember how I've often stated Donald Trump doesn't joke because he has no sense of humor. And so he makes the statement, well, what about Trump in 2024? And what about Trump in 2028? And the reason 2024, you know, he thought he was going to win in 2020, thereby giving him not one, not two, not three, but four, but four terms. And while some people say, oh, that's just Donald. He's just fucking joking around. You know him. He likes to play with the crowd. I'm telling you factually that it is not a joke that he wanted to remain president um, for life. He wants to be an autocrat. He wants to be a dictator. He only, he only admires these autocrats, the people like the Kim Jong-uns, the people like the Mohammed bin Salmans, the people like Vladimir Putin. It's why he refuses to ever, ever condemn any of their actions. Did he condemn uh, Mohammed bin Salman on the death of Jamal Khashoggi? Did he, you know, is he condemning Vladimir Putin on a on a war in Ukraine? Did, did he condemn him when they were shelling maternity hospitals and children's schools? I don't think so. And do you think he ever will? The answer is no. Why? Because, again, he wants to be them. So how could you criticize people who you want to emulate? You know, I, and, and before I ask this question, Michael, uh, excited to take uh, questions from listeners. Feel free to jump in uh, into the caller queue if you have a question for Michael Cohen. When you were close to Trump and, and you were among his closest inner circle, Michael, did you see him all the way back then expressing this love for autocrats? And, and what did you make of it? So remember, and I say this so often, sometimes it gets tiring. When I was close to Trump, and there was no one that was closer, when I was, when I was by his side, he would do things, he would say things, and you would roll your eyes and you would shake your head and everybody would go back to their offices and they would be like, oh my God, did he really just say that, right? But it didn't matter. We're talking about a mom and pop real estate company that was a, just a myopic part of the just New York real estate world, right? So he would say things, we would do things, we acted inappropriately in many cases, but it didn't matter. Everything changed when Donald Trump joined the world stage, but didn't just join the world stage. As president of the United States, you dictate the world stage. If the United States goes into something, chances are everybody else is following. Because, you know, there's always been an adage, a strong America is a strong world. 
A weak America is a weak world. Right now, thanks to Donald Trump's incompetency over the previous four years the, and during his administration, we are suffering, right? The world is suffering, and it's all a direct result of the lack of confidence that the world, that our allies have in us simply because he abandoned our allies to cozy up to our adversaries. And this is not how democracy spreads. He basically, you know, shit on the feet of all of our allies, all of these democracies in exchange for what? Communist, monarchs, dictators, autocrats. Michael, no one could ever accuse you of being shy. And so I'm gonna have us take a couple of calls uh, from folks so that you can give them the real talk. The next person in our caller queue is Peter. Peter, welcome to the program and feel free to jump in with your question for Michael Cohen. Thank you, Miles. Uh, thank you, Michael. Great show. Uh, I want to make a quick comment and a question for Michael. Uh, I felt that uh, the United States has become a national uh, security state. The uh, If Michael Flynn's uh, advice to Trump to use military to seize the voting machines I think we're all fucked, as a matter of fact. I think that they have tried to use national security as an excuse to overturn the election. So Trump, in my opinion, is also a victim of the national security state uh, because of the uh, Russia gate. So my question for Michael is this. Having the, uh, tr have tr uh, Trump pretty much directed the crowd to go on the Capitol Hill, on January 6th. For everything we know now, do you think he will be indicted or not? Thank you very much. Look, that's a great question, Peter. And, you know, there's a difference between, you know, optimistic and hopeful. I am not. Um, I am not of the belief that they are going to indict Donald uh, on behalf of the January 6th committee. I pray to God that I am wrong. But I don't believe that. I believe that there will be other people like these fools that followed him or followed his recommendation to go to the Capitol. Hey, I'll meet you there. Um, you know, come, you know, come to the ellipse. We're going to march on the Capitol. That's not what the ellipse was even there for. Um, it was not supposed to be a march. It was supposed to be a rally. So I think that they are petrified to indict him on this. And my fear is that the January 6th committee report is going to be very similar to the Mueller report, which will then, you know, be passed on to Merrick Garland in order to bring the indictment. And I just don't think Merrick Garland has the balls to do it. I think he's so afraid of what will happen to Joe Biden and then to the next president and next president that he's just trying to wave a magic wand and saying, please, let's just get past this. Let's just forget about it. Let's move on. Let's become the democracy that we were pre-Trump. It's just not going to happen because Trump let the, you know, he, he opened up Pandora's box to evil. And we're going to see a whole slew of Republicans that are going to be following Trump's stupidity all the way, and God forbid, to the White House. We, we've got Cheyenne next in the caller queue. And Cheyenne, I'll come to you in just a moment. But I want to add to that, Michael, and to Peter's question 
about Trump using the national security apparatus for personal benefit. That's one of the things that in my case, as you know, Michael, was most alarming to me and caused me to leave the administration is because he had a constant inclination to ask to use the tools of the national security apparatus for personal political purposes, whether it was shutting off emergency aid funding to California wildfire victims because it was a blue state that voted Democrat and he didn't like them, or whether it was using the powers of the presidency, including as commander in chief, to potentially send troops into Mexico to keep migrants from coming in. Uh, he wanted to use those national security tools to make himself look better and to punish his enemies. I mean, in my own case, and I know this happened to you as well, Michael, when I left you know, the administration, it, and, and even when I was in there and I published the anonymous op-ed against him, his first response was to, we, to tweet out the word TREASON in all caps. And then he said, for national security reasons, the New York Times must hand over the author so that we can prosecute them. I mean, he wanted to use these powers of the presidency uh, for completely nefarious and unconstitutional purposes. I think that's what was so shocking uh, to people. Um, now, Miles, Miles, before, Miles, oh, go ahead, before we go to before we go to Cheyenne, uh, I just want to I want to jump in on that. You all may recall that I was unconstitutionally remanded back to prison because Donald Trump ended up using the Justice Department. He used Bill Barr as a tool within which to lure me down to 500 Pearl Street. So, yes, like you, Miles, you know, I, you know, I, too, have you know, suffered, we'll call it the wrath of Donald's refusal to acknowledge that our country is based upon a, you know, a three, um, a, a tripartite system of, you know, executive, judicial and legislative branches. He believes that as president, that he has unlimited authority to do whatever he wants. He claims that the 14th Amendment gives him that right, which, of course, is just not accurate. Um, and he's willing to use all of these levers of power, all of the levers of power to go after people that he does not, you know, that he does not care for. And, um, you know, that's why I have that lawsuit, which is right now pending um, here in the federal court in New York at the same building, the Southern District of New York. Um, you know, and thank God for somebody like Justice, um, you know, uh, Alvin K. Hellerstein, who called it for what it was, an unconstitutional retaliation against a U.S. citizen because he refused to waive his First Amendment constitutional rights. That's what Donald Trump is all about. All right, so let's go to Cheyenne. Cheyenne, you're up. Yes, hello, can you hear me? We got you. We hear you. Hi, okay. Cheyenne. Hi, Michael, and hello, Miles. Thank you for taking my question. Um, it's really early for me, but this, it was worth it to stay up. Um, okay, uh, yes, it, my question actually was, and I'm glad you mentioned the um, Trump's affinity for terrible dictators and strong men, because I had a question about Vlad he, him and Vladimir Putin. Um, there, you know, it's been in the in the news and the media about how Trump has said that uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, his terrible war, which is killing men, women, and babies. Uh, that he thinks that Putin is smart and that his it's a great you know strategy and a great thing that he's doing. Um, but I was wondering, Michael, it got me thinking to the opposite of that. In your opinion, what do you think is the most 
um, consequential or significant difference between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. I'm so sorry. Say, say that one more. What is the difference between? In your opinion, what is the most significant or consequential difference between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? Oh, that's actually a very simple question, Cheyenne. Uh, and I'm glad, I'm glad you asked it. Vladimir Putin happens to be bright. He happens to read. He's a study and a massive study of history. Um, Donald Trump has never read a book in his life. And the worst, the worst part is Vladimir Putin, despite being the dictator that he is, he surrounds himself by people who, despite that their, their ideology is, is really uh, misplaced and it's flawed, they're also bright people. For God's sakes, when you start having somebody like Dan Scavino, who is a former caddy at Trump National Golf Club in Briarcliff, and then you have him as the general manager at Briarcliff because he moved up the line, right? You have to understand this is not the smart man that you want to be your deputy chief of staff. When you have your chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, who's not even a CPA, but rather he was a bookkeeper that was given to Donald by his father when he loaned him money, right? You have to understand he's not the best, he's not the best person. Right. Then when you have like your chief operating officer, that was your former bodyguard. These are not people with qualifications. So Donald, Donald's belief system is that whatever he thinks, his knee jerk reaction has to be the right thing. And it's why, for example, he refused to acknowledge. I want you to really to listen to what I'm saying on this one, because it's so fucking stupid that you can't make this stuff up. Even if you were Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live, that science isn't real. I mean, you all remember Donald Trump making that statement. Science isn't real and COVID isn't real and it's the flu and people die from the flu every single year. Right. He refused to listen to experts, to epidemiologists like a Dr. Fauci or a Dr. Burks. He refused to listen to science because his response, of course, again, was science isn't real. Well, guess what, jerk off, right? How many Americans right, have been buried as a direct result? I lost a family member simply from, um, from COVID. Um, and I mean, you know, how about all of the empty tables um, or the empty chairs at the table this year for all the various holidays, Easter, Passover, et cetera, that are go we're going to be missing, you know, our loved ones because of COVID, because Donald refused to acknowledge that COVID is real. And so don't worry, just go, go to work. It'll be gone in three days. I promise. Right. Listen to me. I know better. Right. Or when he tells you that he knows more about war than his generals. You really have to scratch your head and say, holy shit, Donald, why don't you tell me what war that you've ever been in? Because the only thing I remember is being tasked to shut down the conversation that newspapers um, were trying to bring up about his you know, failure to uh, participate in the Vietnam War, claiming that he had bone spurs in his feet and made him ineligible. Right. I mean, what do you know about war? I know he went to New York Military Academy for like a year before he got thrown out. But other than that, what is your experience that you know more than your generals? So here, look at what Vladimir Putin is doing. 
his previous general that was in charge of this Ukraine war, this terrible genocide, um, was failing. And it was making Putin look bad. So what does he do? He then gets rid of that guy and he brings in a worse person, right? A person who has, you know, who's known as like the butcher, um, who's going to, you know, um, do things that literally offend our senses. Um, why? Because Putin is intent on taking Ukraine. That's not how Donald sees things. It's not how he how he thinks. He thinks just because he thinks it, that it becomes a reality. Michael, I think you hit on something uh, in answer to Cheyenne's question that's really, really telling about the relationship between people like Donald Trump and autocrats like Vladimir Putin. That example of replacing um, you know, one senior official with a much more brutal one is something that students of history can see all the way back to uh, you know, Hitler's regime back to the Soviet Union. But even in modern times, I mean, we saw it with Trump, the people who were his cabinet secretaries at the beginning of the first term were people who didn't know him well, had experience in their jobs and were extremely skeptical and wary of this new commander in chief who in the first few weeks I saw, I mean, they were terrified at how reckless he was. But what did he do? He systematically fired them and replaced them with the people who would say yes to the more egregious, more illegal, unconstitutional and offensive ideas that he would cook up. The ideas that the Jim Mattises and the John Kellys and the Rex Tillersons were saying no to in the first few years, he put the yes men uh, in place. I I also want to note, Michael, before we take the next call from uh, the next caller from D, is you noted that Trump often claims he is the expert in everything. There's a very comical list that I put together of things he's claimed he's the expert of. One is he once said, no one reads the Bible more than me, uh, which I find very fascinating. I'm going to read a few more. I think nobody knows more about campaign finance than I do because I'm the biggest contributor. I know more about the courts than any human being on earth. Nobody knows more about trade than me. Nobody knows more about taxes than me. Nobody knows more about ISIS than me. Nobody knows the U.S. government system better than I do. And on technology, technology. No one knows more about technology than me. Truly the world's expert in virtually everything. Okay, so so let's have some fun here. Bring up number one. Uh, the Bible. Right. Um, I'm not I'm not Christian. I'm Jewish. And I also know not to call it two Corinthians. Right. I mean, that's just not <laughs> how it's referred to. Uh, <laughs> on top of that, I'm not sure that, you know, he can actually recite a single prayer, a single prayer accurately, um, you know, including how you refer to, you know, how you refer to um, the the chapters and the verses. I mean, that's just how much he knows. What was the one right after that? Uh, we had that uh, no one knows more about campaign finance than he does. Well, I went to prison for a campaign finance violation that, for example, was done at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. Moreover than that, when he turns on, he says nobody, you know, that he's the biggest donors uh, and so on. That is also a lie. Right. Um, Do you really think for a second that Donald Trump contributes a lot of money to other people's campaigns? Now, he has 
donated money. Don't get me wrong, because he thought it would financially benefit him. But in comparison to like the Koch brothers or, you know, or others in, you know, that are similarly situated, uh, as far as that, like the Peter Thiels of the world, he's not even in the ballpark. What was and then also he said he knows more about ISIS than anyone. Maybe Marino's Italian ISIS, right? And even though the truth is he's not really a big fan of ISIS, he's really a big fan of Hagendaz, you know, hence of course the size of his gut and his ass. But you know, what, what else did you say? He knows more about technology. How about the fact that Donald Trump has never had a computer um in you know on his desk? The only time he ever used his laptop computer was so that he could watch golf. Um, you know, while sitting at his desk. I mean, it's just everything that he says is a lie. It's one lie after another. And you were right. When he first went into the White House, one of the things that I had said to him and that he has to be careful about is the fact that all of these people that were around him, excluding Ivanka and Jared, um, really did not know Trump as a person. They knew very little about him. Um, and what I said to Donald is not only do they know little about you, you know very little about them. So, for example, his chief of staff, his first one was Reince Priebus, former RNC chair, who then became known um, during the campaign as well as when he was in the White House as rancid penis because he's just a rancid human being who basically thought all of them that joined all thought the same thing, that Donald Trump is an idiot and that I'm going to be the puppet master. And technically, I will be able to control him and the future of this country over the course of the next four or eight years. And each and every one of them who thought that underestimated, you know, Donald Trump's own personal greed for both money and power. The only one that actually did not believe it or not, is Jared. And so he played Donald literally so that he can get exactly what he wants, which is money out of the Middle East, out of Saudi Arabia. Michael, we're going to go to the next caller we have in the queue here. D, you are on with Michael Cohen. Hey, can you hear me? We got you loud and clear. Yeah, you know, first of all, the the clip of Michael where he asked how many times Donald Trump used uh, a racial slur, and he's like, you know, a hundred, probably two hundred, three hundred is like a, it's an insanely uh, crazy legendary clip. Uh, but my question is, do you think that there's a mistake in making Trump kind of the face of all bad within politics? Because I see people like. DeSantis, who I think actually is going to be the nominee, and they're very Trump-like, except that they don't necessarily have his obvious sort of uh, shortcomings, but I think they have some of the exact same characteristics that uh, Trump does, and I think it's a mistake to kind of say that there's a Republican Party, a never-Trump Republican Party outside of Trump, because it doesn't seem like there's a constituency for that, unfortunately. So, okay, so let me um, D, um, correct you on something. Um, the House Oversight Committee hearing where I had said, you know, 100 times and I said more, and then they said 200 times, I said more. Uh, it wasn't uh, as you characterized it. It was the question that came to me was um, how many times Trump asked me to threaten people. Um, and that's where, that's where that clip came from. 
Now, as far as making Trump into the face of evil for the Republican Party, it's unfortunate, but that's exactly what he is. You know, anyone that's willing to take San Salvadorians, for example, because they're not visually appealing to him, right, and to put them in cages, separate family, right, and then send the parents back while keeping the children. I mean, this is evil. This is Adolf Hitler shit evil, right, where you separate families. Um, this is it's it's wrong. And, you know, to make Donald Trump into the face of what is wrong with the Republican Party to allow people like Ron DeSantis and Josh Hawley and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ted Cruz and all of these others in order to, um, you know, prop them up as a different part of the Republican Party. I hear your point and your point is very well taken, but it is what it is. Factually, what they do and what Donald certainly stood for is evil. It's, it's just not who we are. It's not who we portray ourselves before the world. Um, they, it, is, it is evil to do the things that they're doing. You know, one of the things that happened is my first time when I was in the Oval Office with Donald, it was just the two of us. We were sitting and bullshitting. And he was, of course, you know, say, could you believe? Look at this place. You know, look around. Take a look at the art. You know, give me a second. You know, because he was on the other line. And then when I sat down, he started to talk to me about uh, the, the uh, what do you call it, the, the Muslim ban, right? But of course, he didn't call it a Muslim ban. He called it an immigration ban. And I turned around and I said to him, Mr. Trump, I said, Mr. President, that's a Muslim ban. And you can't ban a religion from the United States. Now, you could claim that at the time that there were reasons why we want certain people not to be permitted to come to the United States for national security purposes. And I would be behind that 100%, as should any American. But you cannot ban a religion from coming to the United States, of which, of course, he then blamed Steve Bannon and Steve Miller for this mistake and that, don't worry, we'll get it right the next time. That's evil because he has a problem with, with, with uh, Islam. He has a problem with, with all religion because he also lacks any religious conviction himself. But he specifically has a problem with Islam. And I don't know the reason why, but he does. Michael, I'm so glad you bring those up because, you know, on, on the Muslim ban, <clears throat> it's something that I saw as a slow moving train wreck up close. He, of course, put out that order. And then over the course of many months, you know, John Kelly and others tried to get this back into the box and reverse it and put a more credible counterterrorism policy in its place. And when Trump found out what they had done, he was infuriated. He was so mad. And for the balance of my time in the administration, he kept demanding a bigger and bigger travel ban. He said I'm, he, he was pissed. He called it milk toast. He said it was a, quote, weak ass travel ban. And he was so mad that it had been watered down and he was demanding countries get added. What was so uh, eye opening to me is when he would talk about the countries he wanted to have more immigration from and the countries he wanted to have less. 
the racial animus was obvious and I can list them off to you. I remember sitting there in the Oval and him talking about how he wanted more people to come here from Denmark, Finland, Iceland, and, Norway, and Sweden. Sweden. And yep. Sweden. That's right. You yep. know it too. Because what yep. did he love? He loves white people with blonde hair and he wants more of them here in the United States. What countries did he say he really didn't want people to come in from? Haiti, Somalia, anywhere, Africa. frankly, in Africa, anywhere on the continent. He would list off those countries and say, you need to turn off immigration from there. I don't know what other conclusion you can come to other than he didn't want poor black people to come to the United States and he wanted rich, blonde, white people to come into the country. I know that sounds hyperbolic, but you witnessed it too, Michael. That's how he talked, right? Uh, 100%. And, you know, a lot of people criticize me on a regular basis, claiming that I have this massive animus for Donald Trump. Uh, and that, you know, this is sort of like a payback against Donald Trump for me going to prison and so on. Well, first of all, yeah, I am angry with Donald with with Donald um, for many, many reasons. Um, you know, the things that I did improperly, I have owned them. Now, do I own the fact that there was tax evasion? No, it's a lie. Did I did I misrepresent myself to a bank? Absolutely not. That's a lie. And I have a second book that's going to be coming out in about maybe three months called The Department of Injustice. I show I show people how the, the Department of Injustice, you know, railroaded me into these pleas. People don't people don't know this, but how they ended up getting me to plead guilty. It all started on a Friday. At 5.30 p.m. when my attorney had met for the first time with the Southern District of New York prosecutors. And they told my they told my attorney I wasn't allowed to go to the meeting, which is unheard of. But they told him that if I didn't plead guilty by Monday, they were filing an 85 page indictment that was going to include my wife. Now, mind you, this is post the raid. I had no documents. I had nothing. I never thought in my wildest imagination that they were going to now they were coming after me. Now they're going after my wife and I could not put her in harm's way, especially not even knowing what they were talking about. We ultimately the next day found out that they're charging, you know, well, I that night they turned and they said, well, we're charging you with tax evasion that we're charging you with misrepresentation to a bank and campaign finance violation. Well, the campaign finance violation is accurate. All right. But I said the, the tax evasion misrepresentation, that's just not true. Not only have I never not filed a tax return, I have never I've never requested an extension. I've never not paid on time. And despite the fact that they claim that there was one point three um, million um, that was not paid over five years in taxes, what they refused and even the judge refused to take it into account is that I paid over six million in taxes. So when they called me a sophisticated tax cheat, right, it's just complete and utter bullshit, but they needed to railroad somebody. And the Department of Justice talks about how I got railroaded, who was behind it, and it starts with Donald Trump and works its way down to the lowest level guy who's over here at the Department of Probation, this guy named Pakula. It is just an absolute, it's just an absolute joke. And it, rest assured, and I try to explain this to all of America, if they could do this to me, just think about what they can do to you. Well, I think I think it's appropriate, Michael, that you're calling this the Department of Injustice. I mean, under Trump, uh, 
you know, he was constantly trying to wield the tools of his office, in, including the fact that he oversaw the Justice Department to have things done uh, that would benefit him. And um, I think we could go on about that for a long time. I, I want to take another caller while we still have time. Mateo, uh, in the caller queue, you are live with Michael Cohen. Hey, how are you, how are you gentlemen doing this morning? I'm enjoying the show very much. Oh, good. Great. Uh, th thanks for doing this, Michael. So, Michael, I have a I have a very sensitive question for you, and the way you answer it is totally at your discretion. Um, and that is this: I studied, uh, I studied, you know, the RussiaGate type stuff very intensely three, four years ago. I I even did kind of an exceptionally deep dive in that I was really curious about all the propaganda surrounding uh, Maidan eight years ago, and I was kind of on an obsessive, you know, hunt to figure out what the truth was. I'm sorry, the uh, truth about what, Mateo? Well, just basically if the Putinites were 100% lying or they were just 80% lying in terms of what really happened in Maidan. Um, I'm sure you have opinions on that, but that's not what I want to ask you about. What I want to ask you about is this. I have the theory that a big part of why the Mueller report uh, didn't result in kind of like, you know, all the convictions and whatnot that we thought it would like three, four years ago my big theory is that the reason that that didn't happen is because uh, Wiseman and Mueller had a relationship, which is now a 25-year-old relationship, working with Felix Sater. And the other part of that theory uh, was that the period where Felix was supposedly during the Iraq war going around and recovering old stingers and whatnot, what he was really doing was mixing up the business of the United States government with the business of the Russian mafia, and he was doing it under the cover of war. And the whole reason that Sater never went to prison, that Sater never had his big, okay, yeah, we collaborated, I wrote that email, you know, and that really is like the smoking gun. The reason that never happened is because Felix's activities uh, incriminated so many elements in the government and possibly the military, including Loretta Lynch, who, of course, said nice, nice things about Felix to a judge 12 years ago. Do you have do you have any feelings on on why on why Felix got away with it and you didn't basically? Yeah, um, I I'll be honest with you, I'm not a hundred percent certain that all of the stuff uh, that Felix Sater claims to have done. I don't know what his role with the CIA and government was. Clearly, you are right, Loretta Lynch brought his name up at the confirmation hearings, uh, and so on. In all fairness, Felix, Felix is a, uh, he's a shyster. I mean, there's really not a, I don't think that that's the reason why they didn't do it. Um, though I'm, I'm a hundred percent. I can't say a hundred percent. I'm, I'm relatively certain that there are things that Felix knows and there are things that he and others might have done which pose a national security interest. It's the same reason why, for example, I have made applications to FOIA for my 302s that the, the testimony of different people, um, you know, in order to indict uh, me, to get a grand jury to indict me off of what? Off of paying you know, I'm the only person who paid somebody, right, to keep their mouth shut. Everybody else stole money from Avenatti all the way to, to Kushner, right, to Seder, all of them. So do I think that there's information that 
could have or would have come out that would be, let's say, embarrassing to the United States and to many of these uh, people that are inside. It's exactly, again, why they won't give me the 302s or any of my FOIA documents that they keep claiming that it's process and method that they have to redact everything um, and refusing you know, to provide information. Because, look, they do, they do things as well. Um, for what, what reason? I don't know. I don't know specifically what it could be. It's a great question. I have to be honest with you. It's one of these type of questions that I don't really know legitimately how to answer. I don't know why Felix got off though. You know, Felix had his, you know, he had his moment, uh, in time. Um, he really wanted to do this deal in Russia with Trump um, and myself, which was called the Trump Tower Moscow deal, because he stood to make a lot of money. Uh, I mean, that's really for my understanding. That's really what Felix was doing here. Um, you know, he was really looking just to make a, um, a big financial score on this property. I, I know we're close to time, Michael. I want to ask you about the January 6th investigation. I think to Anyone who turned in, tuned into the news that day, it seemed pretty evident that a sitting president of the United States was was inciting violence against the Capitol. Trump himself recently said he had intended to march to the Capitol himself, but the Secret Service told him not to. Uh, the investigation is continuing. I wonder if there's been anything so far, though, that's surprised you about the January 6th uh, Select Committee investigation. And my second question would be, where do you think this ends up for Trump? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I think it's going to end up the same as the Mueller report, that they will then, you know, punt it to DOJ, uh, to Merrick Garland, in order to determine whether or not that an indictment of Donald should uh, occur. As far as what's disappointing, what's disappointing is that there's over 800 people who have testified so far. And I myself testified, not before the January 6th committee, but various committees. In fact, there would be 10 different committees. And each and every one of these meetings lasted between eight to nine hours. So if you just do the simple math, you'll realize that they have enough information that would fill God knows how many boxes, but in terms of hours and days, it's basically having a witness on the stand for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two years straight. Now, if you don't have the information to indict somebody who was there live on television telling people to go to the Capitol, I will meet you there. These folks came with bear sprays and bats and metal um, objects, and some had guns and a whole slew of zip ties and so on. After they built a gallow right in the middle of the ellipse area, knowing that they were going to and wanting them to go ahead and to commit acts of, of violence, and then when it was happening, refusing to turn around and to call in for reinforcements to protect the police officers and, and others that were there. Look, if they don't have the information um, that's there, and we already know as, as you know, citizens, because we watch television and we read the newspaper, um, all of these emails and text messages and, 
And again, the depositions of all of these, you know, 800 different witnesses. If we don't have enough in order to build the case and to and to really indict Trump and prosecute him, then they should stop because it's embarrassing at this point. And we are all suffering from something I call Trump fatigue, this Trump derangement syndrome that we all have. We are just all tired of Trump, 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 day in and day out. And yet you still have, you know, people like Merrick Garland just sitting and waiting. You are not going to have video of Donald Trump telling anybody to storm the Capitol. You don't need that. There's more than enough evidence to have indicted and prosecuted him the same way there's more than enough evidence um, to prosecute him for the New York District Attorney case. And yet that's not happening either. So I don't have um, I don't have high hopes. Well, Michael, uh, it's it, eye opening and hair raising as always to hear your assessments. But I, I try to end every single podcast on as optimistic a note as possible. Um, lighten the mood for us. Give us a TV show or an album that Michael Cohen is crushing right now or binging. So we get to know a little bit about you and or your optimistic predictions for the future. Hit us. So the only thing I'm watching right now is I'm just finishing up. We crashed right now about WeWork. Uh, happened oh, yeah. To, you know, yeah, the story of Adam Newman uh, and WeWork. Uh, you know, we just finished watching The Dropout. Um, but honestly, uh, I'm just really working on my own podcast, you know, on Maya Culpa, which is, you know, thank goodness it's been a uh, like a top 50 news um, podcast since the day it started. Uh, I'm working on my second book, uh, potentially working on a docu-series myself uh, that's going to incorporate the second book. And other than that, I'm just trying to, you know, make amends with, you know, with the country. Uh, I spend a lot of time with my wife and my children, uh, you know, who unfortunately have suffered um, through this, you know, process as well. Um, you know, they don't people most people don't realize that this process doesn't just shred your heart and your soul. It shreds your whole family's soul. And, you know, what we're doing is, um, you know, spending as much time together, um, you know, and enjoying each other's company. Well, Michael Cohen, a man who had been at Trump's side and is now working daily to snuff out the embers of Trumpism, do tune into his podcast, Mea Culpa, Michael Thank you for joining the program. Always good and good to hear from all of you listeners and all of you subscribers. All right. Thank you, everyone. And please join us next week on Tuesday, April 19th. We will welcome Ken Quapis, who is behind one of the popular shows you've all seen, The Office, uh, likely for a very different conversation. Uh, excited to have Ken on the program. And thanks again to Michael for joining us today. We'll talk to you soon.